started officially. We are recording this to uh, release as a live podcast episode. So we'll be going through our opening spiel and all that. Gabby. Welcome to Ghoulish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not so famous cases. Of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking. We do a lot of that. Not so much today. Nah. No. Today we're kind of steering away from the legend and lore and the ghosties and leaning more heavily into the true crime. The true crime. Because where are we? We are at the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. Yes. yes. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you. And we have an amazing live audience. This is really exciting for us. Oh my us. God, I'm really excited. Yes. Uh, well, no, I, I, we've not recorded a live episode before. This is new. This is new. Like I've done panels at like Crypticon on horror and true crime. But for the podcast stuff, we haven't, we haven't had a chance to do this. So it's really cool to talk to like actual humans um, who are living and not ghosts. We're making an assumption. Yes. We should not assume things. Uh, <laughs> no judgment if you are indeed a ghost. We encourage ghosts. We love them. We went through a lot of different ideas for what to cover today. At one point in time, and I think it is still listed, we had two ideas. We got ambitious. <laughs> Too much. Too much. We would be here for two hours. Yes. And we're only here for an hour. So uh, I picked today's case yes. that we're going to be talking about. And part of what inspired me is that I have a kind of weird interest in the history of uh, capital punishment in our states. Uh, now, Washington abolished the death penalty in 2018. State Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. Last person executed here was in 2010, a man named Cal Coburn Brown. We're not talking about him. Don't get excited. But that's a little bit of uh, death penalty trivia. I don't know. Just a little prenup. A little prenup. Prenup? I don't know. That <laughs> sure. was the wrong word. That was the wrong word. Uh, I do want to give a little bit of a warning. Uh, the case we're going to be talking about today has some rough moments in it. I know we're at a, a like true crime fest, but we're going to be talking about sexual assault at times and violence being done to a child. It's kind of rough, and, and we just want to make sure everybody understands what they're getting themselves into. This is another case where Kim gets to ruin your day. Yay! Yay! You're welcome. Welcome to Ghoulish Tendencies. Welcome to Ghoulish Tendencies. So, hey, I clicked the right button. Oh, no, it was that button. I clicked the wrong button. That's okay. It still it's worked. Okay. It still worked. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Charles Rodman Campbell and the murders of Renee Wickland, her daughter, Shanna Wickland, and Barbara Hendrickson. Wait, no, this one. There it is, okay. <laughs> December 11th of 1974. 23-year-old Renee Wickland was outside washing the windows of her home. Those who knew Renee described her as kind, responsible, and gutsy. She was a drum majorette in high Ooh. school. I love that. That's such a fun fact. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that detail. Um, she'd recently moved into a new home with her husband, Jack, in Clearview. Washington, that's Clearview right there. It's got a real clear view of Clearview. <laughs> very scenic. It's very pretty. For, for our non-Pacific Northwest listeners, uh, Clearview is a small town in Snohomish County. It's, oh, I actually did this because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you can all see where Clearview is. It's right there. It's, just, it's about a half hour outside Seattle or so. Um, their house was kind of off the beaten path. And it was a pretty decent distance from the main road. Her baby daughter, Shanna, was about a year old, year and a half old, was outside. She was playing in the grass. Now, Renee spots a man in their driveway. That's already kind of weird. Again, they are off the beaten path. Yeah. Yeah. Not so fun to see that. Not so fun to see that. He was also very distinct looking. He was about six foot five, big guy, red hair, big beard and mustache. But he saw her, they kind of made eye contact, and he turned around and left. So she's like, all right, you know, maybe he was looking for somebody else's house. He realized he was in the wrong place. Didn't think a whole lot of it. Kept washing the windows. And suddenly, she'd gone inside to get some more rags, and he's there again. Uh-oh. And she would later testify. He was running toward the house, up our driveway, I thought that he was after Shanna, so I ran outside to grab her, and before we could get inside the house, he was pushing the door. He forces his way into the house. Renee, trying to act calm, 
said, is there something I can do for you? He demands that she perform oral sex on him. She refuses. He brandished the knife at Shanna, her daughter, and said she needed to get your clothes off right now or I'll kill the kid and I mean it. Which I can't fathom. I mean, beyond terror for yourself, but when your, your, your baby is right there. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. So fearing for both of their lives, she disrobed and he proceeded to sexually assault her. At the end, he put his clothes back on, straightened them out, said thanks. Oh, how nice. And left. Wow, rude. Yeah. Uh, Renee immediately grabbed Shanna, ran across the way to the neighbor's house, Barbara and Don Hendrickson. Uh, Renee was very close to the family. They were in their 40s and had been spending a lot of time with them, taking care of Shanna, and she knew she'd be able to get help there. Barbara was home, saw the state that Renee was in, and she immediately let her in. Renee was able to articulate she had just been raped, that the man who did it might still be nearby, and Barbara would later tell the police. Renee said there was a man outside, and she was afraid he was going to come back, and she looked out the window, and I promptly locked the door and got out my shotgun. Yes, I know. That's what you do. Barbara's a professional grade badass. I love her. Everything I read about her, I was like, you are just an awesome, caring, cool woman. Hell yeah, Barbara. Yeah. Uh, Now, police arrive. They take Renee's statement. What I found particularly interesting, they had a suspect almost immediately. Someone who was already very well known to them. Oh, yeah. A man named Charles Rodman Campbell. Uh, He was born in Hawaii on October 21st of 1954. He was just about 20 years old when he attacked Renee. They moved to Snohomish when he was a child. I'm not gonna lie, this picture of Snohomish, I mean, compared to Clearview, you're like, nothing against Clearview. Clearview's wonderful, but like, that's real pretty. That's real pretty. That's there's real a nice. bridge, there's water, there's a sunset. They don't have that in Clearview. No sunsets. <laughs> sun never sets. <laughs> is that like the title of your hit song? The that sun is. never sets sun in never Clearview. Sets. Yes, in Clearview. I'm sorry to anyone from Clearview who might be in this room right now. Disclaimer. Is anyone from Clearview in this room right now? No. Cool. cool. Like a trash talk. No. Yeah. I have cool. nothing against Clearview. Absolutely not. Um, so... Ch- Back on track. Charles was often bullied at school. Uh, He grew up very angry. He had a lot of anger inside him. He had a sister who was a disabled person, and a lot of his bullies would bully him about his sister, which is horrible. Uh, Kids are the worst sometimes. I love kids. I work with kids, teaching them theater, but they can be the worst. And, And... Uh, He was protective of her. He got into a lot of fights as a result, and he just kept getting angrier and angrier. He had a lot of run-ins with the cops. Uh, Mostly as a teenager, he was first arrested at the age of 16 for stealing a car. Not just anyone's car, though. Uh Uh-oh. No, um, it was the family car. Yeah. His dad turned him into the cops. Oh, no. For stealing the family car. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. That's actually very funny. It's, I, he, well, this is less funny. So later he'd oh, be no. overheard on the phone with someone telling him to shoot his dad. Oh, no. Uh, so, you know, class act. Real nice guy. Yikes. That part reminded me very much of uh, Danny Rowling. Oh, yeah. We covered a few episodes ago that really contentious relationship with your family. And also he shot his dad. <laughs> There was that. Uh, So the next year, in July of 1971, his mother, Betty, reported him as a runaway. And according to the report she gave, it said that Mrs. Campbell states that she has given up hope for Charlie except for trying to get him to court. She would not bother reporting him gone and would just assume that he never came back home. Wow. 
and I, you know, I wish I, I tried to do some digging to find a little bit more about his family, about his relationship with his family outside of these records, because it's so hard when you don't know. Is this a case of a family trying to do everything they can ahead of time mm-hmm. and doing every possible thing they can think to try to help their kid? And at the end of the day, nothing works. So you're like, well, maybe this is the only thing that can do him any good is to get him arrested, get him in court. Or is this a case of a family being super neglectful and just being like, listen, I don't really care anymore. And I I could not find a concrete answer on that. Uh, He'd be arrested later in July of 1971 because he stole a bunch of guns from his grandparents' house. Wolf. That's not good. Not good. Police noticed track marks on his arm, and this is my favorite part. Their exact quote was, uh, he said that he had shot, quote, everything except Kool-Aid and peanut butter. What? (laughs) That's a really odd choice. I just like how specific both of those (laughs) things are. Like, why pick Kool-Aid and peanut butter? Also, how does one shoot peanut butter? I have questions. I have quite. I mean, the creamy one may be the chunky one, though. Oh, rough. That's a rough go. That's a rough go. Don't do it. Um, Also, if you're allergic to nuts, you're going to have a bad time. (laughs) Just don't do it, people. Uh, So he's sent to reform school, and then he is on probation. In 1973, at the age of 19, he got married. In October of the same year, he beats up his at the moment, pregnant wife. Oh, jeez. Threatens to kill the dog. Oh. I like that that got a bigger reaction, y'all. I'm, <laughs> I'm judging you all a little bit right now. Pregnant wife, you're like, oh, that's too bad. The dog. <gasps> I'm sorry. No. I'm sorry, but like, do you know that there is a higher rate of people who have dogs than people who have children in the in Pacific Seattle? Northwest? No, Seattle dogs outnumber children two to one. I just got one. Yeah, you did. You're you're. It's you. It's uh, you're it's, the people. I'm the people. Uh, he also um, threatened his mother and his sister. And like any any ladies in the room, I've said this before. I'll say it again. You can do better. Oh yeah. You can do better. If this is your bar, please raise the bar. Please. Um, so their, their daughter is born in March of 1974. By June, when the baby is literally like three months old, he gets upset because the baby is crying. Aww. They do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he threw a butcher knife at her. At the baby? At the baby. Okay, what happened? I mean, he just threw it. He has a pe- he was shooting up peanut butter. Did he it had bad do anything? Aim. No, <laughs> no. But like that, you know, that was the wake up call his wife needed to be like, maybe this is a bad idea. Yeah, maybe she had to wait that long. Uh, no judgment on anyone involved in okay. an abusive relationship. In that, what can finally be that straw that breaks the camel's back to say I need to leave? The butcher knife. That the butcher knife okay. to the child. That's Got that. It. That's the straw. Um, so she left him. They get divorced, and she gets full custody of their daughter. Good. Yes, yes. Yay. We are very pleased on that. That is celebratory. Uh, his criminal record continues to grow, ranging from drug possession, fraud, burglary, assault. Take your pick. Uh, he had charges pending against him when he attacked and sexually assaulted Renee in December. And he's 20. He is ambitious. He, he's a go-getter. Uh, oh, so that's so distasteful. <laughs> this whole case is. It's just this whole thing. Ugh. Now, Campbell, as we noted earlier, he has a very distinct appearance. Part of how law enforcement made the connection so quickly was that this guy, this very, very tall guy with like reddish brown hair, that leaves an impression. But Renee, because Renee, also a complete badass. Uh, she made a point of retaining as many details of the man as possible during her assault. She was able to keep like her wits together enough to be making notes so she would not forget anything if it could help bring him to justice. And when she was presented with a mugshot, she identified him immediately and a warrant was put out for his arrest. Now, sadly, he was not arrested until uh, 1976. 
In fact, on December 13th of 1974, two days after her assault, he uses a fake name to get a job at Pizza Haven. Oh. Who here remembers Pizza Haven? Yes, Pizza Haven. I don't know if they're still around at all. I remember them from my childhood. Um, after they close, he walks out with $1,700. Oh. Which is like, by 2022 standards, that's like 10 grand. Yeah, it's not a small amount of money. So January of 1976, he broke into an Eastern Washington home with a sawed-off shotgun Oy. and is arrested for burglary. Oh, we get to keep looking at his face. Isn't it lovely? It's really blurry that big. It's because there's like no... <laughs> there's really bad media for this. I looked. This I know, is, but it's actually more entertaining that it's very blurry. It's very blurry. Yeah. I did that just for you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, so Renee is brought in for a lineup on March 1st of 1976, and bam, IDs him, no hesitation, nothing, this is the guy. He's charged with first-degree assault with intent to kill and one count of sodomy. Renee gave a very detailed testimony against him. Barbara Hendrickson also testified during the trial. And I want to take a note, uh, to just take a moment to note this, because I'm sure, again, we are, we are at a, a Northwest True Crime Fest. Y'all have a familiarity with true crime? Yes, yeah, I'm assuming that because you're all here, or you like it, or you're interested in it. Um, prosecuting sexual assaults is really, really hard. And it's not just that there's often a lack of evidence. Evidence. Evidence, evidence. yes. Um, it's that you're asking a whole lot of the survivors. You're asking them to put themselves through an incredible ordeal in a public courtroom in front of the person who hurt them. And Renee showed so much poise and courage, and I admire her so much because she was determined that this guy was not going to get away with it. Now, Campbell opted to not testify on his own behalf, Shockingly, the defense didn't bring anyone up to act as a character witness. Can't imagine why. He seems like a real swell of a guy. Real stand-up dude. Stand-up dude. Um, so he's found guilty. To surprise to no one. Surprise of no one. Yeah, in this case, it really wasn't. He's sentenced to 30 years with a seven-year minimum for his assault on Renee. On top of that, uh, he was hit with the burglary charge. So he got another 15-year sentence with a minimum of seven to be served. So, like, cool. It's a lot of years. Should be good. Should. We should be good, right? Should. Right, Gabby? Yeah, right, should. He's going to be in prison for He's the rest of his be, life? Should. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. Maybe. We're never nope. going to see him again? Nope, that's not right. Sometimes I hate everyone. <laughs> like, just people. I just hate people. I'm sorry. Uh, and I get very, very angry. Those, those of you who have listened, you've probably heard me go on rants. I get angry at how things <laughs> get handled in the justice system. Um, okay, so first off, this whole ordeal put an incredible strain on Renee's marriage to Jack, which is very understandable. There was also a fairly significant age difference between the two of them, and I'm sure that didn't help. Um, there was, I think it was like a 14-year age difference between the two of them. And, and when you're as young as Renee is, that's a, that's, that's a lot. You know, you change a lot in your 20s. Allegedly, I'm still 25, so. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all laughed at that. <laughs> Thank you. I did. Love you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, they separated, but they were still very friendly. They're dedicated to raising Shanna and making sure she's happy and healthy and being good co-parents. Uh, Renee is working as a beautician and a part-time accountant and just trying to move forward with her life. This corner of the case gets a little weird. And it seemingly is unrelated to any of the attacks on her. So Renee is officially divorced from her husband, Jack. December of 1977, a man walks into Jack's home, wishes him a Merry Christmas. What? Which, well, if you're breaking and entering, you always have to wish someone a Merry Christmas. Wait, but was it actually Christmas time? It was, but okay. it doesn't matter. Even if it's Easter, you wish them a Merry Christmas. That's your little crime tip for today. That's the rule. So when you break and enter, Merry Christmas. Just confuse people. Throw them off. I know, exactly. And then while they're doing that, you rob them. It's, it's a perfect It's a crime. real good strategy. So he ties Jack to a chair, Oof. pours gasoline on him. No. Lights a match. Oh, no. And sets him on fire. 
Woof. And this, to this day, this is unsolved. They do not know what happened. They don't know if it was random. They don't know if... Can you imagine how much you'd have to piss someone off to make them do that? That's a choice. That's a choice. That's something. So, but he survived this. Oh, my God. How do they know he said Merry Christmas? Every time you break and enter, you say Merry Christmas. Wait, hold on. For the people that are at home, because we're recording this, someone just asked, how did we know that (laughs) That he said Merry Merry Christmas? Christmas. So that was what that was from. Uh, No, he survived this. He survived this. He had significant burns and scarring. He actually had to wear at all times this like rubber suit. Oh, bummer. Because the the burns were so bad. But again, his report was that this guy was a complete stranger. And then, in April of 1978, he, he's leaving his home in his car and crashes into a tree and dies. And, and police even then were trying to speculate what could have happened if it was a really kind of windy road, but it was by his home. He knew the road. There was some speculation that maybe it was, it was some kind of suicide. Uh, they, they really don't know. Uh, and again, it's unrelated to anything else that happened. It's just so bizarre. Yeah, that's weird. But it did... Like, Renee was already very anxious from having survived the attack on her. Having this happen to her ex-husband, first the, the attack on his person and then his death, that, that took it up to 11. Which, man, I understand that. Oh, for sure. Um, through all of this, she is still living in the same house. Barbara still lives across the street. Uh, Sh- Shanna grew older. She was tall for her age, but quiet. She's a little shy. She took dancing lessons. She wanted to play the flute like her mother. Her mom played the flute. Cute. Uh, and Renee just wanted her daughter to be happy and healthy and, and live her life and move on. Charles is still in prison. By June of 1976, he is transferred to the Washington State Reformatory in Monroe. This is like, I don't know, a 20-minute drive from Clearview, give or take. Uh, But again, no biggie, because he's in jail, and he's going to be in jail for the rest of his life. Right, Gabby? Right? He's going to be in jail the rest of his life, isn't he? This is an audio medium. (laughs) Okay. Um, He starts a romantic relationship with his drug counselor. Oh. What a good groan. Oh, wait, it's going to get better. That was a great groan. That was a great groan. They're going to hear that groan. Thank you for that. Uh, it gets better. Um, she was apparently a nun. Wait. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> I told you you'd know when I got really tired during the site. When I get a little sleepy and punchy when I'm putting, uh, putting a PowerPoint together, that's when things like this happen. <laughs> so I'm sorry, but also I'm no, not. No, don't apologize. I'm that's not. great. We need some humor to lighten us up it's, during this type of topic. Also, I just, I was raised Catholic. All nuns have to look like this to me. I just, this is, this is how, this is how I see things. Um, now, uh, also, as someone who was raised Catholic, nuns are not supposed to sleep with Anybody? anyone. <laughs> Especially not inmates. I feel like not inmates. Extra. I think there's an asterisk on the Ten Commandments that actually puts that in. Yeah. Oh, and it's frowned on by the prison. There is that too. Yes. Yes. Frowned on by the prison and the church. Well, she did get fired. (laughs) Oh, good. Um, And she's going to hell. And well, (laughs) not even touching that. Um, Charles at this point has a nickname. Do you want to guess what the nickname is? Oh no. Um, I don't know if I want to because it's probably not going to be what you're going to say. It's One Punch. That was his nickname. One Punch. Because, like, he'd punch you. And knock you out? Once, and that's all he needed to do. Dang. (laughs) He's 6'5". I mean, like, that's just, like... He's a big boy. He's a big boy. It's not the most original nicknames, to be honest. I feel like... Who came up with it? I don't know, man. Probably somebody named Two Punch. Like... (laughs) Got real jealous. Got real jealous. Like, this dude gets him with one punch. It takes me two. Sure, dude. Um, but, like, this, this, this goes to emphasize, this is not a model prisoner. 
Like sometimes, you know, we, we research cases where somebody had been in prison and gets released. Gacy. I, oh, I did yeah. a teen true crime on Gacy. And like the first time he was in prison prior to any of the murders, because he was in prison, um, but he was a model prisoner which is part of why he was able to get released early. This is like, Campbell was not this person. He was violent. He had a reputation for also trading drugs. The guards allegedly knew this. Allegedly. <laughs> no one here is gonna get that. People at home will. Nobody in this room gets that. Sorry, well, you said it, I had to do it. It's fine. Um, his cellmate accused him of sexual assault. Yeah. This is, nobody's looking at him being like, well, he's really turning his life around. <laughs> Said absolutely no one. Ever. Ever. Um, so in January of 1979, a psychologist, R.A. Main Man. <laughs> sorry, that's a very funny last name. I'm sorry if I just mispronounced your last name and R.A. Main Man is listening and like, is that's he not my name. a main man? <laughs> Sorry, yes, he's the main man. Um, he, he would evaluate him. He would later write that Campbell is a conflict-ridden man. Quote, he has declared war on society, all of whom he regards as mindless nitwits who are getting theirs and are now out to get him. The resident is further seen as insensitive, blithely uncaring of others, conscienceless malevolently intolerable of the society order which imprisons him, and imminently harmful to all who directly or indirectly capture his attention or interest. Which is just like a really fancy way of saying this guy is a dick. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's real fancy. It's real fancy. That's what it boils down to. One punch dick. <laughs> One punch to the dick. That's what I'd like to do. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, so then in August of 1979, another inmate accuses Campbell of sexual assault, saying that Campbell threatened to kill him if he told anyone. And this is where I start to get even extra pissed. Um, and you all will too. You're going you're gonna to bask in my rage and you're going to feel it and we're all going to just be a little rage room. It'll be great. It won't, it'll suck, but we're on this journey together, so at least we've got that. June of 1981, the parole board waves his mandatory sentence. This decision, among other decisions, makes him eligible for minimum custody status. Now, I looked this up, because this was actually a phrase I was not familiar with. Oh. Do you know what it is? I sure don't. Okay, no, I, I had to look it up too. I'm sure, I, I, from the sound of things, some of you were like, no, I know exactly what this means. Um, basically, like, the lowest custody and supervision security category. So it's assigned to inmates who are low risk. But why? But why? But why? Um, also, if this is their definition of a low risk inmate, what do they consider high risk? That's terrifying. The guidelines have changed if that helps you. No, it does. It does. And partially because of this. Um, because, well, because like he wasn't even trying to pretend he was not a horrible, violent person. Um, but the parole board, in, their, in fairness to them, and I don't always give them fairness, but nope. in fairness to them, they were told virtually nothing about his behavior. There's been, there's been changes since then, and this is part of it, that um, the prison guards were actually afraid of him, wanted him transferred to Walla Walla State Penitentiary. And later, part of because of everything that's going to happen afterwards, um, the parole board not having a full picture of prisoners being, that were being sent before them, all of this comes out. And they realize they released hundreds of prisoners who had not been properly evaluated. A surprise to no one? <laughs> Perhaps? I mean, exactly. Someone may have thought about smoking a joint once. That's a high risk. That's the high risk right there. This is pre-war on drugs. It's 81, so like, yeah. 
a little early, but well, still. Context helps. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting ready for it. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> Uh, so August of 1981, he is granted minimum custody status, Status words are hard, which sets him up for work release. By October of 1981, he is sent to Monroe Work Release Facility, work as a cook. By December of 1981, his ex-wife reports he left work release to go to her home and rape her. And then he does it again in January of 1982. Hello? Can somebody do something about this? Well, they didn't think there was any or enough evidence to do anything. Evidence. Yes. Evidence. Evidence. Yeah, because she because women because women lie about these things. It's fact. Said no one ever. Well, no, too many people say it, and that's the problem. So he's transferred to Everett, not because of any of these things that he's done but because the facility closes that he was at. So now he's working in Everett, uh, and within 30 days, he has four infractions against him, and he's living in a halfway house. That one, right there. Halfway to, ooh, halfway to murder. Halfway to where? That sounds like a podcast. Halfway to murder, that's a, Halfway to murder. TMTM, TMTM, TMTM. all right, somebody call it. No, it's great, it's called it. You've got it. So here's a man arrested in 1976, it's now the beginning of 1982. And yet, he still has to report in. He has a curfew at the sure. halfway house. Like, yeah. oh no. He has a curfew. How horrible for him. Uh, but he has access to the outside world. If we're doing the math on that, that is uh, less than six years. That is infuriating. It's Keep that feeling in your chest. Let it keep you warm and snug. Is that a warm feeling? We're gonna, though? we're gonna flame it. I'm just checking. Oh, timer. Okay. okay. All right. We're gonna, we're gonna flame this. Okay. All right. Flame it. Okay. Um, now you would think that the the woman who was attacked, the woman that he attacked while he was, you know, the reason he's in prison, who lives so close by who thought that her attacker would be in prison till she was an old lady. You'd think someone would tell her, right? Right, Gabby? You would think. Someone called her and told her, right? Somebody should have, but they did not. No. And, and he's not just out, he's nearby. He's about 10 miles away from her. Oy. And the thing is, is that Renee felt like something was up. Um, January of 1982, she noticed footprints in the snow outside of her house. Also footprints outside the Hendrickson home. Um, and, and again, you're like, well, footprints, is that really a big deal? But her house is off the beaten path. Her house is off the road. This is not, people aren't just crossing by. This is not a neighborhood where you're walking by and leaving footprints. And now her, her dog, who's also normally very chill, had started barking. And there was even a, one report I'd read that, that at night the dog was barking at something outside. She was afraid to open the curtains and look. Listen to your animals. Well, and sadly, the dog had to be rehomed. Oh, no. Uh, he, like, nipped at somebody, oh. and so they had to, they had to rehome him. Like, he was fine, but they had to rehome him. That makes me sad still. But she's feeling like someone is watching her. And it's hard because she, she had a lot of anxiety. She had a lot of anxiety about everything she'd lived through. And I think it's really easy. People dismiss you when you say things like this. And I think it was really easy for her to probably dismiss herself to some extent. We all do that. Yeah. We all do that. There's our, that voice in us, that, that little thing in our gut that says we should be danger, danger, danger. But eh, eh. it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Um... April of 1982, Renee comes down with strep throat. By Wednesday, April 14th, she is still sick. She is on the mend. Barbara has been looking out for her. Uh, Shanna left for school. Barbara comes by. She sees Renee is resting. She's watching some TV. And so Barbara said, well, I'll come by later and check on you. Campbell entered Renee's home, finds her in bed. 
Eric Lynch, who later uh, would prosecute the case, uh, he described the brutality of the attack on Renee by saying, he, meaning Campbell, slashed her throat to the point where he nearly decapitated her. He beat her. He sexually assaulted her. Her body would be found nude. He tortured her before she died. Her jaw and nose were broken. She'd also been strangled. And after death, a blunt object was inserted inside of her, which left a cut. Um, and this, this next bit is, is honestly so horrific, and I'm just giving a preface, a warning, anyone listening at home who wants to skip about the next 30 seconds, uh, because we are talking about the death of a child. Shanna came home, eight years old. Um, he attacks her in the dining room. He drags her into the bedroom, forces her to look at her mother's corpse, and then slashed her throat. And according to a Seattle Times article from 1994, authorities could not get a blood sample from the body. All of her blood was on the floor. And then Campbell went into the kitchen and made himself a snack. Which is so vile. I, like, I, can't, I can't believe it's real. I can't believe somebody would be that. Like, you just murdered two people in cold blood, one of them a child. And I, you know what I need? I need, a, I need a sandwich. He was a sandwich. That's what he made. Yeah. And he waits. At about 4.20 p.m., Barbara Hendrickson. Oh, Barbara. Goes back to the home to check in on Renee. Campbell attacks her, cut her throat as well. Oh. All of the victims were beaten. Um, Barbara and Renee had their ears torn. Like, they had earrings, and their ears were torn. He then steals some jewelry and some other items and leaves. Like, not covertly, not carefully. He left bloody handprints behind. People saw a man with a knife leaving the home. Wow. Also, P.S., if you see a man with a knife leaving someone's home, Hello? maybe... Hello? Call the cops. Do something. It's a thought. Do yeah. something. So Donald Hendrickson, Barbara's husband, um, he headed over to the house about 6.30 p.m. because Barbara was supposed to be home. And he thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe... She got caught up with them. Maybe she needs some extra help. Um, He went over to Renee's house, and he later said, the house was so quiet. It was unlike anything I'd ever heard before or since. Totally still. And then, as I got further into the house, I heard something. Water running from a faucet somewhere. Which... I mean, it's such a chilling thing to walk into a place where you're expecting to hear life and sound and maybe laughter. You've got a children living there and all you hear is silence and water running. He notices a chair knocked over. Barbara's was the first body he found. And there, I mean, he knew as soon as he saw her, he knew she was gone. There was no... uh, He then went, he found Renee's body. He didn't see Shanna right away, so he had had that moment of hope that she was still okay. And then he saw Shanna's body. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, That night, Charles Campbell, drunk, high, gets to his halfway house where he was staying. His blood alcohol would be almost three times the legal limits. He also had codeine, morphine, methadone, cocaine in his system. Wow. Still no peanut butter. No Kool-Aid. No Kool-Aid. No peanut butter. Uh, honestly, I don't know how you walk when you are that combination. Does it all start to cancel out at some point? Yeah, I guess I, yeah, I, I, having never been on, I mean. All of the above. Whiskey. Whiskey. I've been on whiskey before. You've been on That's whiskey. It. You've been on wine. Yeah. It's the W's. 
I like the W's. Whiskey and wine. Uh, but I, I don't know how he was not passed out, but um, the halfway house, you had to be sober. That was one of the conditions of... of uh, him being there, and so they took him back to Monroe Reformatory. So that night, he gets sent back to prison, not because he, of anything, that he, of him, just not because of anything else, but because he was drunk and high. So there you go. Uh, attention was on him, though, immediately. The local sheriff's office, even you know, when they first were investigating, they were like, well, yeah, there was this attack, but I mean, that guy's got to still be in prison, Right. So the sheriff's office was super pissed to find out that they were not told either that this very dangerous criminal was on work release. But he, I mean, he's in custody, so there's no manhunt. Um, he's charged with three counts of first degree murder. Trial begins in November. He has the balls to go with an innocent plea. Oh my God. Uh, they found your bloody handprint, dude. Like that's not, I, I don't know how you can, how do you talk your way out of that? How do you try to be innocent when you can actually know that you left where people saw you with the knife and handprint blood all but over the But then he shows up back to his head. Well, but at this point, look at how much he's gotten away with throughout his life. That's true. I, I guess with like the passiveness of everything, no one's really taken as his. He's probably like, yeah, seriously. nobody else has done anything yet. This is fine. Um. It's like he's testing the waters to see what he'll get caught with. When he had the re the jewelry that he stole from Renee, he right. tried to sell. Because, you know, he, I just found that. Wow. Yeah, no. Uh, so his trial begins. Oh, remember? Remember her? Oh, jeez. You're welcome. <laughs> we needed it after that details. I know, for, our, for our listeners at home who can't see, I, I took a still from The, the Nun. Nun. <laughs> like the, the, the James the Wan Insidious franchise nun, and that's what I've been showing. Um, we'll post it to our Instagram yes, for with no, with, except with no context. No context. No context. We'll just post it. Yeah. Um, once he was out, they reconnected, and she gave birth to his baby. So, <laughs> well, this is his second kid now, too. Wait, somebody said Rosemary's baby, somebody and we all giggled. We giggled, all right, yeah. cool. So it is, his trial begins, like before, he does not testify on his behalf. He doesn't really do much during his trial except doodle gravestones and, like, hangman's nooses that he then flashes at everybody. Look what I drew. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a choice. That's... He's keeping it classy. Took the jurors four hours to find him guilty. Honestly, to, I even when I read that, I was like, it took really? you that long? That long? That's a long Please. time okay. for that. Uh, maybe they wanted to, like, toast after? I don't, I don't know. I don't so know. Um, he was officially sentenced to death in December of 1984. Yes! Yes! <laughs> and this is all brings me back to what first got my attention about this case, because... It was back when I was reading about uh, the death penalty in Washington State. Prior to the moratorium, Washington State had two options for execution. One was lethal injection. Ooh, ooh. Do you know the other one, Gabby? Ooh, I do. You do. What is it? It's almost like he hinted at it by drawing it. Mm -hmm. It was uh, hanging. hanging. Death by hanging. Death by hanging. Only the states of Washington and New Hampshire... Retained hanging is an option. That's so random. Well, in New Hampshire, if it's found to be impractical to carry out an execution by lethal injection, oh. impractical. What what defines impractical? I, if, I guess if you run out of the drugs, I don't know. It hurts. Oh, it hurts more when they break your neck. If you're scared of needles, all right. If you're scared of needles. If yeah, you, maybe I, that'll be more effective than you won't even need the drugs. I want to meet the person who's scared of needles, murder. but not, yeah, just don't murder. That's you're, the wait, bar. Hold on. You're scared of needles, but you can kill somebody? You're scared of needles, but the noose is fine? Sure. I don't sure. know. That's weird. Um, so uh, in Washington, the, the condemned had an outright choice between hanging and lethal injection. So he's given a choice about how he wants to die. And this is what starts off a whole thing. Because if you do not choose... Do you know what it defaults to? Hanging. hanging. Yeah, it defaults to hanging. 
So Campbell is all, well, you can't make me choose because it goes against my religion. Lol. Well, because, like, if I choose how I die, that's basically suicide. Also, you fucked a nun. Excuse my French. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, that's you. That zing. Just saying. I, I have some questions and some issues with this logic, but, like, sure. Um, so that means that hanging becomes the, the default, right? So remember back, we talked about how big this dude is. 6'5". He's 6'5". Big guy. Which starts off a whole other thing because there is a, legit, a legitimate concern over decapitation. Ooh. If, it, if somebody is too large. Uh, in fact, there was a whole other case in Washington State about an inmate and he gained a bunch of weight, mostly so he could say it was cruel and unusual to execute him by hanging because I might be decapitated or hung or hanged, hung, tanked. Tomato, tomato. Tomato, tomato. Um, He's very vocal about how cruel he thinks this is. Let's watch. Death is not instantaneous. Thank you, 15. And that a lot of people, it takes 5, 10, 15 minutes to die. That's a long time to be, you know, hanging up there. Uh, very ghastly way to die. I'm sorry, wait, where are his sources? I'm sorry, it's a ghastly way to die? You know what else is a ghastly way to die? Uh, yeah. Cutting someone's throat. Slashing someone's throat. Um, I, there's so much about this. When I first watched it, I actually had, I rewound it and watched it like five times in a row with my mouth hanging open. So I was like, this isn't real. This isn't real. This isn't real. Um, uh, no one cares. Nobody cares if you suffer. I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, the, the appeals go on for, for a long time. By May of 1994, it's, it's done. He's out of appeals. No one cares. The governor at the time was Mike Lowry. Who here remembers Mike Lowry as our governor? Yes. Um, he was insanely against capital punishments. A fact that they were using very like his defense was using to their favor, trying to get you know his uh, uh, get a, a moratorium, get a, his execution um, uh, stopped. But Lowry met with him and read up on the case. And after meeting with him, he was like, you know what? For him, I'm cool. <laughs> that says a lot. That says oh, well, I'm not, like I kind of feel similarly because I, I am not pro death penalty. I'm fine with this. I'm fine. We're fine. It's fine. Sometimes, well, you know who else thought it was the best option? Who? Tell Campbell's me. mother. Oh my God. <laughs> that says even more. She said she felt the death penalty was appropriate for her son. In fact, she was quoted once as saying it was inevitable. I never believed he was going to end up anywhere but the electric chair. She was close. She was, yeah. Washington doesn't have an electric chair. Get your facts straight, lady. We also have a noose. We do, yeah. Um, Had, past tense. He said, because he's awesome and classy, the world has created me, and I am free to do what I want. There is no right or wrong or anyone to tell me what to do. Okay, man-child temper tantrum. (laughs) If you needed one more reason to hate him, there you go. You're welcome. Um, When the time came, he did not go quietly. Let me rephrase that. Um, He didn't really have a whole lot to say, but he fought the whole way. Like, laid down in his cell, just being like, nope, I'm a log. I'm a lump. You're going to have to pick me up and carry me. No, they pepper sprayed him. Yes. That'll do it. That'll do it. They pepper sprayed him, um, which again, I'm not pro death penalty, but like show of hands who wants to at minimum pepper spray this dude right in the face. Yes. Or like punch his balls. Yes. Yeah. One, pu- one punch. One punch. One punch. One kick. punch. Bring back the times in the village square where you just and everybody gets to do one punch. Full circle moment. Full circle moment. Really bringing it back. It's poetic. Um, 
Yeah, he full on, he won't get out of his cell. They pepper spray him. They handcuff him. They move him into a holding cell, which is closer to the execution chamber. Uh, when they search his cell, P.S., after the fact, they found he was in the process of making a weapon. Oh, fun. Classy. Um, they strap him to a board to take him to the gallows. Do what you gotta do. I know. It's, the, I feel so bad for the guards. And they're trying to, like, get this hood on him. Uh, and it's, it's like trying to put, like, a costume on your cat. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. This may be a horrible analogy to make. But you're trying to get this, and they're just like, no, no, no. no. Um, that was a really great visual. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> it's just for the people in this room. You're welcome. Uh, and our Patreons who may... No, you missed it, Jake. You missed the opportunity to have Ghost me... Ghost daddy. Make, make myself look like a you. cat. Uh, Mary Christensen, who worked as an assistant to the prison superintendent at the time, said he was conscious, but he was being passive. Like, if you want to move me, move me. Like a yeah, two-year-old. Like a two-year-old. Or a cat in a costume. Or a cat in a costume. Uh, uh. Um, he had no recorded last words to offer. Yeah. I was like, we don't need anything else from him. We're fine. Those are good enough. That's good enough. Uh, yeah, you, you left far too many as it is. He was dead within two minutes of the trap door opening. Yeah, not the 15 minutes he anticipated. I'm, oh, I'm a horrible human being. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Who say here it. is kind of bummed out it didn't take 15 minutes? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, this was the last execution by hanging in Washington State. though. So there was that. Fun fact. Fun fact. Uh, but that's uh, Charles Robert Campbell, everyone. And sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, do you want to take questions? Yeah, we've got, we've got about nine minutes yeah, or so. Yeah, so we, have, um, we do a thing at the end of all of our episodes called Creepy Critics Corner. We talk about topics, uh, or not topics. Like media like we've been watching. Things we've been watching, reading, what have you. Mostly horror movies for me. Sometimes trash TV Sometimes. or other fun things <laughs> yeah. for me. Um, but we wanted to open it up if anybody had any questions since we have this opportunity to this do that lovely instead. lovely live audience, yes. Does anybody have any questions for us? Can I ask a question about that case we just talked about? Sure. sure. Was his brain ever studied or were there any attempts at explanations of where all this rage came from? Uh, let's repeat the question. Yeah, so the, the question was, was there ever any attempt to, to study his brain or to try to find the source of all of this rage? Um, outside of the meetings that he had when he was incarcerated with various psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, there was no actual, like, study done on him. Uh, the, the details on his childhood are, are super sketchy. Understandably, his family has not really wanted to talk a lot about him. Um, uh, even his, his son, has, who never really, never knew his father really, um, has spoken a little bit, uh, has a blog somewhere. I found some of the old blog posts, but I think has since found religion and doesn't really talk much about it at all. Uh, but I, I had read a couple reports that said his parents, right from the get-go, really didn't have an interest in raising him and kind of shoved it off on the grandparents. And the grandparents were tired and like, we've already raised children. We don't want to raise your children. I didn't find a lot to substantiate that. It was a, a couple kind of isolated references, but nothing outside of, like, he got bullied. But, uh, like, yeah, that's horrible. We shouldn't bully each other. We should be kinder to each other. But most of us managed to still get through life and not kill people, murder anyone. Yeah. Um, so there was, there was never an, an, like, no one ever took the opportunity to say, like, we want to try to crack this code or break this down. Not that I think he would have really cooperated. <laughs> if, if, I mean, he doesn't strike me as somebody who would have been, other than probably talked about himself a lot, I think he would have enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, but no. I mean, he did meet with psychiatrists who were all just like, yeah, this guy should be kept away from people. Um, but that was about it. And At least from what I found. Yeah. It's even scarier when it's obviously nature. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, because you look at, you know, um, 
and a lot of what we cover, part of why you, you want to kind of look at that childhood is that a lot of times you do see some kind of very dysfunctional relationship or events. And again, we're not justifying, we're not saying this is a reason, but it, it does... You can get from A to B to C. You can get from A to B to C when you know about their childhood. Uh, this isn't one where there was a clear A to B to C. From, from some of the other reports I read from some of the, the psychiatric evaluations, they, they reference him as being like psychopath. Very much a narcissist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and there's not a whole lot to be done about that at that point. Yeah. It makes you wonder if children are born evil. Oh, Sandy said it makes you wonder if children are born evil. That's a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. That I don't think we have enough time to go down. It's <laughs> true. Currently, well, we we talk like with Just Mary Bell, yeah. we we kind of get into that a little too. But it's yeah. yeah, it is very much its own. Yeah. Yes. So her parents were still. Uh, her Wait, parents. Repeat the question. Oh, sorry. Yes. That's um, okay. Were there any surviving members of the family, like on Renee's side, or or anyone else? Um, Like, were there any legal things that happened because of that? <laughs> Sorry. There's a law now in Washington that if you're convicted of certain offenses, yeah. there is a 35-day law enforcement victim witness and law enforcement notification for being released and going to work release. So that, like, would have saved Renee. She, Renee would yeah. have known that well, he yeah, was out there. Yeah. Like, that's because of him now. But specifically in regards to family, um... There was very, uh, uh, her parents and, and um, Jack's parents, her in-laws, she had stayed quite close actually with Jack's parents. Uh, they were still living, because there, there was a couple articles I read that talked about when they were notified of what happens. Um, but they were older. I don't think, there wasn't a lot of pursuit. It was actually Dawn started working um with uh, a number of different groups, he actually remarried for a time to another woman who'd suffered a similar tragedy of, of I, I can't remember, I can't remember who it was that had died, but they, they met through their work and married and then later divorced and then Don passed away because uh, he was, uh, he was like 50 or so when it happened. So he passed away a number of years ago. But there's actually very few people still alive who were related to anyone involved in the case. I think, really, it's his son is still alive. I'm assuming his daughter is. I've never seen... I don't know that she's ever publicly... I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. I'd have, I, well, and my understanding is that after him and his ex-wife got divorced, there was... Other than he paid them $75 a month in child support, and... There was no contact. So I'm, I'm hoping she got to live a great life, is living a great life, and, and completely away from that. Um, she did have a couple strikes against her. Yeah. I know. It's, uh, uh, there's, the, you, the, there's a lot of the children of serial killers have written books uh, or written or uh, there was a TV show for a while that, that was actually taking family members of killers and putting them in contact with family members of some of the, the victims' families to try to heal. Ooh, that's distasteful. It was, I, I watched a couple episodes when I was researching something at one point and it was like weirdly cathartic for both sides, but it was kind of weird to watch. That's, that makes me uncomfortable. I was like, this would have been great behind closed doors. Watching it, I feel weird. That's even strange. worse. Yeah. yeah, but anyway. My nephew was murdered. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I can't. I, I blame the parents of the guy who did it almost as much as. Yeah. Yeah. So that just is completely foreign. To yeah. Me. No. It's it's, uh, one and there's, it's also you 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 have families who are so forgiving and which again that's great if you can be, but that's you're 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 asking a lot of yeah. of people and people who are still grieving people who are angry, like I'm I have no I'm not emotionally connected to this case outside of researching it and I'm angry I'm sh I was so angry when I first learned about this case and the research made me more angry and 
like if we're all there without that emotional connection, I I can I only can't imagine. Fathom. I yeah. can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, we do need are, to wrap it up. Yes. Are there any other questions while we're here? No. Thank you guys so much for coming. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been absolutely wonderful audience. Yes. And you can find us uh, at Ghoulish Tendencies anywhere on the interwebs. So yes. uh, we have a uh, Instagram and we are anywhere you find podcasts. Yeah. And we have a website done by Ghost Daddy himself. Yes. Yes. Uh, but, but thank you guys for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks.